In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. Each week, Brexit Republic has the latest from Brussels, London and from Dublin. This week, David Frost fronts up the EU-UK relationship. What can we expect based on past form? And we hear from Alan Powell of the British Distillers Alliance, a specialist excise consultant who maps out the bumpy road facing UK alcohol exports. But first, Sean, to somebody who was once associated with the British alcohol industry himself, David Frost, who was the CEO of the Scotch Whiskey Association. He's now the point man for the UK in their dealings with the European Union. That's right. That was the big surprise of uh, Brexit this week. Just when you thought it was all quiet during a midterm break, suddenly Boris Johnson pulls something out of the bag. Lord Frost himself, David Frost, is back in the midst of the EU-UK relationship. He has been put in charge of the Joint Committee. That's the body that uh, sorts out disputes under the withdrawal agreement. And it's also where... Uh, disputes on the Northern Ireland Protocol get resolved. And also, he's the UK chair of the Partnership Council, which is where the any disputes that arise under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the uh, Future Relationship Agreement, they get sorted out, or are supposed to get sorted out. Now, originally, the Joint Committee British Chairman was Michael Gove, and he was paired off with Maros Shevchevich, the uh, European Commission Vice President, and they are to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol. And in fact, that's what they've been working on this week, and we'll do more work on it next week. It's the week after that David Frost comes back into the picture. And the Frost-Gove relationship was supposed to have been a relatively pragmatic, maybe warm would be too strong a word, but at least there was a level of a personal relationship there that seemed to be working. Gove-Shevchevich was, was uh, by all accounts, a very good relationship and uh, a pragmatic relationship and one where a lot of work got done. Uh, And indeed, it it was the go-to relationship when we had that outbreak of the vaccine war a couple of weeks ago. On the British side, it was Michael Gove, use your good relationships and contacts with the European Commission, i.e. Mr. Shevchevich, and find out what on earth is going on there. So it was a bit surprising that having built up uh, a good working relationship, suddenly uh, they go back to David Frost, who, you know, for all his um, expertise and experience in negotiating Brexit, uh, you know, good, warm relations were not exactly the, the, the first phrase that uh, springs to anybody's mind when thinking of uh, how he got on with his uh, EU interlocutors. Very professional with uh, Michel Barnier, uh, but he always took a pretty confrontational approach in trying to uh, get things out of the European Union. And people suspect that that is going to be the approach uh, now going forward, now that he's back in there. Uh, right. if some people are looking at it and saying, look, he's the fellow who negotiated that Northern Ireland protocol. That's the bit that's giving us the most grief. So, you know, you made it, you broke it, you buy it, you own it, you go fix it. 
uh, and get it sorted out. Uh, we'll see if that um, is the uh, way that they're going to proceed in this. But also the interesting thing as part of the, the kind of palace revolution, as some people are talking it up, after all, it's midterm break now. People don't have much else to write about. But uh, Michael Gove had only been 48 hours in the job as interim uh, chairman of this partnership council for the British side, uh, when suddenly uh, he was turfed out of that post and uh, Lord Frost inserted uh, in his place. So he has to deal with the future relationship. And as part of that, he will be overseeing the operation of 19 separate uh, sectoral committees that will be sorting out the uh, British-EU trade relationship and all the other aspects of the, the future relationship, justice and home affairs, uh, for example, as well. Right. Do we know anything about the politics of this decision? I mean, David Frost was initially going to be tapped on the shoulder as a national security advisor. He lost out on that. It was said that he was angling for a seat at the cabinet table in some fashion or form. This gets him that. Yes, it does get him that, uh, although, again, uh, he is uh, a Minister of State in the Cabinet Office, so in the pecking order, Michael Gove is his boss, because uh, Michael Gove is, is the, the Cabinet Office Minister, but he has also been given a full place at the, the Cabinet table. Uh, he's also a member of the House of Lords, um, so he is, to coin a phrase, an unelected, unaccountable bureaucrat who is now fronting up the relationship with unelected unaccountable bureaucrats in Brussels uh, so but also sitting at the cabinet table uh, in Britain some people are wondering uh, what exactly will be his um, accountability to parliament he will have to appear there at, at various committees um, but um, I suppose unlike Michael Gove he won't be standing up in the House of Commons making those statements uh, but he will be subject to questioning by the, the, the various committees right. uh, that will be examining uh, the various aspects uh, of the uh, British-EU relationship. But there's no doubt he's now got himself uh, a very powerful position dealing specifically uh, with that uh, EU relationship and also the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, relationship, uh, which of course is the uh, very tricky and very sensitive one. Uh, so we'll see how that proceeds. He takes up the job on the 1st of March. Right. Now, he comes from the Foreign Office, and in his speech, I couldn't tell you the date of the speech, but it's the relatively recent past. He laid out his Brexiteer credentials, saying that there was a kind of an overwhelming Europhile wind blowing in the Foreign Office, but he had developed strong opinions of his own during his time in Brussels, or, or, or so he said. Uh, yes, he, he had uh, spent some time in, in Brussels in the 90s, and uh, said he'd started out as a, quite an enthusiast for it, uh, but had become disillusioned uh, over his time there. Um, how disillusioned? Well, well uh, hard to assess. But on the other hand, um, one of his many other careers uh, was in the Scotch Whiskey uh, Association, right, where which, he seemed to take a different approach indeed, to, to indeed, the uh, European Union. Indeed. He contributed to a document in 2016, June 2016, and he wrote a chapter entitled, Can the UK Secure Free Trade Outside the EU? He was entirely unconvinced at that time. He was talking about UK exporters facing customs and administrative barriers and rules of origin enforcement, said by economists, economists overall to be equivalent of 4 to 8% of the value of goods traded. And he says, so all of these arrangements would leave the UK with less access to the single market than before. Would this be outweighed by freedom to negotiate trading arrangements with other countries? A simple bit of maths says the answer is no. Sounds like a very different David Frost. 
It does, the mathematically minded David Frost. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, again, it sounds like the guy isn't ideologically wedded uh, to Brexit uh, and might have to make uh, the best of it uh, that he can. On the other hand, you might say, having negotiated the deal, he now has to make the best of it. Um, this is his date with destiny. This is his big gig that being the uh, EU or UK's negotiator on the Brexit deals with the EU is one thing, but actually sitting in the cabinet and being a minister in the government, being able to crack the whip over civil servants gives him a chance to drive uh, that relationship in this all-important period of setting the foundations down, laying in the concrete there and getting set for the long term. Uh, And that will be very, very interesting to see how that uh, tends to pan out. It does, though, I mean, a lot of people reacting to this one saying it's it's looking like a much more spiky relationship at a time when you might expect to try and settle down uh, and try and steady the ship. Uh, as we know, things got off to a pretty rocky start over the past few weeks uh, between the EU and the UK. You might have thought now is a good time to uh, try and simmer everything down. It mightn't be the best idea to put in a spiky character like Lord Frost into the mix. Uh, anyway, that's a decision that's been made by Boris Johnson, and we'll see what happens. Right, and we'll be looking at at, at what's happening currently to some of people who, the people who used to be in his bailiwick, namely whiskey producers in Scotland, with Alan Powell of the British Distillers Alliance later on in this podcast. Now, Sean, we touched on equivalence last week in the area of financial services and how it was in the, within the EU's gift to grant equivalence or not. There is somewhat of an olive branch on the area of data equivalence this week. That's right. Um, Hugely important area because, as we know, for the last couple of years, data has exceeded the value of oil as a tradable commodity. And uh, the economy as we know it is basically becoming um, driven by data and the commodification of data and the flows of data are absolutely vital in the modern economy. Um, the EU has put in all kinds of data safeguards, probably going to put more in uh, in the years ahead. Uh, but as Britain has now left the EU, uh, the, the flow of data between Britain and the EU and vice versa is subject to different sets of laws. The EU will not export the data of its citizens to places where it doesn't consider there's a high enough level of legal protection for that data. Uh, So it looks around to see is there a sufficient equivalence to grant an equivalence ruling. And if there is, then that's fine. The data can continue to flow. Right now, there hasn't been a disruption because under the uh, Trade and Cooperation Agreement, there's a six-month period grace period to coin a phrase uh, under which the existing uh, laws hold and the existing arrangements carry on so there shouldn't be any disruption up until june the eu was supposed to make a, a data equivalence ruling the british were hoping for it to be done last year before the talks had concluded in fact they had made their own uh, equivalence ruling under their own new british domestic uh, data protection legislation and said that the eu uh, data protection setup is equivalent to the British one, so there should be no problem with data flowing from Britain into the European Union. They are waiting for the other side uh, to come back. Now, today, Friday, they have done that. The Commission has said, yeah, we reckon uh, that uh, the British uh, system is equivalent to ours. 
well, you kind of ought to be because they were operating under the same laws. Uh, so now they've said uh, they want the European Data Protection Board and the Committee of Experts from member states to have a look at the draft legislation they're proposing. And if it's all right, uh, then the Commission can just go ahead and do this data equivalence ruling, which should be in place by July. However, the uh, issue of divergence does crop up again. And that's been an issue um, and is an issue right now in the similar uh, equivalence ruling on financial services, the one that the City of London is most interested in, in getting hold of, because the Commission has been saying, we need to know what your future intentions are for diverging away from uh, EU law and EU rules and regulations. So that's a, a serious problem uh, for financial services. Uh, the data equivalence one, they haven't raised that as such a big issue now, but what they have done is, uh, in this draft legislation, said it would apply for four years uh, from the time it comes into uh, effect and would then be reviewed uh, again in four years' time. And that uh, also happens to put it into the same kind of ballpark as the uh, review of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Exactly. So you can see these things are proceeding step by step. Yes, uh, today's move looks like a bit of an olive branch by the Commission. On the other hand, uh, there's a bit of a, a uh, you know, the olive branch. Every olive branch is a stick. A stick, a so, stick. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So watch that one uh, happening down the the, uh, the road. And you know, this might give us some pointers to the way they might be thinking also in terms of, of the financial services uh, equivalence ruling, which is due at some stage as well. Right. An area which has encroached on the whole Brexit thing through the proposed triggering of Article 16, although the European Commission, as it pains to point out, it was only in draft form and it was never actually triggered, is the area of vaccine politique. And we have to, I suppose, give a nod to a fellow journalist in CNN International, Angela Dewan, who found the AstraZeneca contract with the UK in a, on an open source site where nobody had found it before and spent her time going through the T's and C's in the contract and found what, Sean? I found that it was pretty much the same as the contract that AstraZeneca had signed with the European Commission. And in fact, she'd uh, bounced this uh, contract off uh, a, a lawyer here in London who, who analysed both of the contracts. They're both redacted, by the way. There's big black lines through various bits of it, but there's enough of it uh, is, is quite legible uh, to see that there was uh, essentially the same, uh, what they call best endeavours clause. In other words, in neither the British contract nor the EU contract did AstraZeneca uh, commit hard and fast to deliver numbers, but it said, yeah, we will do our absolute level best to get this uh, um, uh, amount of vaccine to you. Um, but what, how it's turned out in practice is that uh, what well, the British have been getting uh, everything they've been expecting and AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, flying out and is being uh, injected uh, to people all over the United Kingdom. Uh, the EU has suffered a tremendous shortfall in the amount that it was expecting. Uh, it's become part of the uh, political spat uh, that has broken out in the past couple of weeks. Right. Uh, um, the lore and legend of that is that the EU had signed its contract three months after the British government had signed its contract. But the real smoking gun here in what CNN has turned up is that, in fact, that's not true at all, that the British contract was signed on the 28th of August, and that was one day after the European Commission had signed its contract with AstraZeneca as well. So they were both negotiated at basically the same time. They were both signed at basically the same time, and they both contained more or less the same commitments to supply this vaccine uh, in From the same all kind of fashion. 
from all factories and yet uh, the British have been getting the supply and uh, the European Union hasn't and that has of course been the central problem uh, with this dispute that broke out between the European Commission and AstraZeneca. Uh, today, Friday, as we're recording this, uh, an interview has been broadcast by France 24 uh, with the Taoiseach Michal Martin, who was uh, asked about the uh, row over bre Brexit and vaccines. And he says uh, in that interview, Brexit is not about vaccines. It would be a very superficial analysis of the enormity of Brexit and goes on with the usual lines about it's up to the British people to do all this kind of stuff. Um, but he says, in my view, I pay tribute to the UK government in relation to vaccines. They've taken decisions and decided to do emergency authorization as opposed to the normal protected authorization. And they're getting those doses first because they had a very big challenge also in terms of the new variant, which is more transmissible uh, and more severe and have raced ahead with the first dose. Um, he said we uh, also could have used the uh, emergency law. It was the same procedure. Uh, but uh, he was saying, you know, what the British do, uh, used was, as he understands it, an emergency procedure ordinarily used, if I'm not mistaken, he says, in the context of a patient who requires medicine urgently to help overcome a severe illness. And he says vaccines aren't medicines for severe illness. Uh, he says now that the raging nature of the variant is out there, he can understand why authorities take a different decision on that. And there's some are wanting to move more quickly than others. And we've also, of course, seen the uh, Hungarian government decide to take the uh, Sputnik V or Sputnik V vaccine from Russia, which, uh, as was pointed out by the uh, European uh, Commission during the week, is not licensed for use uh, in the European Union. Uh, Sputnik V haven't uh, applied for uh, authorization in the EU. Uh, and uh, Stella Kyriakides, the commissioner, said it's on the own risk of the Hungarians if they want to use that vaccine. Uh, but we certainly haven't uh, issued any uh, authorization of it, mainly because they haven't applied for authorization of it. And this is another point. If companies don't apply, uh, then they cannot get uh, an authorization. Uh, in that same context, we should probably point out that AstraZeneca hasn't been authorized for use in the United States of America hasn't applied for, for authorization there because they haven't finished completing all of the uh, clinical trials and producing all of the data uh, that the American authorities require for authorization. Although some critical voices over there are saying, look how fast it was approved by the European Union. Maybe we could take their data and use that to make our own rulings on it. OK, well, look, to return to the matter we, we opened with, and that was David Frost. Well, we're not quite returning to him, but he did say when he was the chief executive of the Scottish Whiskey Association that EU membership was central to the success of Scotch by giving access to the single market, and the EU's weight and expertise in international trade gave them fair access to overseas markets through the single trade policy. He's clearly had a change of heart, but somebody who is dealing with the fallout of Brexit is Alan Powell. He's an excise consultant, specialist excise consultant, the founder of the British Distillers Alliance and formerly of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs as well. I spoke to him earlier. So Alan Powell of the British Distillers Alliance, welcome to Brexit Republic. First of all, tell us what difficulties your members find themselves in and whether or not you'd been expecting them. Well, I think the, the um, answer to that is that we, we anticipated uh, the sorts of issues and, and, and disruption that we've got for particularly the smaller SME, smaller or medium enterprises rather than the larger companies, because uh, for excise goods, the flows have been very 
very simple in, 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 in terms of being able to access a, a computerized system to initiate a movement and basically send goods with a, a reference number with, that traveled with the goods. And it was as simple as that. It was inevitable where the country changes to, to exporting to the EU. We are now uh, full-scale customs procedures are involved. And it, it therefore it changed the administration and costs and effectively double, triple handling of paperwork and administration that was required. So both outward uh, exports and in, imports into the UK were going to, I think, be subject to disruption. So it doesn't take me by surprise. It was inevitable. It's a situation that one has to try and resolve for businesses caught in this in this situation. Right. Well, your background and your expertise is in matters taxation. But for anyone maybe who would be unfamiliar with the difficulty that a small British exporter has, such as the distillers that you represent, walk us through the steps that used to be there and the steps that are there now. For If, if we say distillers, but all excise goods actually, uh, for distillers, a distiller would, would be operating what's called duty suspension in a tax warehouse. To move goods from the UK to a tax warehouse elsewhere, either in the UK or anywhere in the EU, a movement would be initiated for, for a movement of product on what was called the excise movement control system. And basically, you key in the data, the information about your the goods you're going to move to a tax warehouse in another member state under duty suspension. And that's essentially it in admin terms. There was some you need a movement guarantee was required to cover the risks inherent in the movement, but that was a, a secondary part of the hierarchy. So it's very simple. If you move goods between Manchester and Birmingham, that's how you, you would do it. It'd be very simple. The warehouse keeper would just receipt the delivery. End of end of story. The same thing would apply if the goods were moved between Manchester and Vienna, or Manchester and Malmo, Manchester and Hamburg. It just flowed, so the goods could just move freely across the community. And similarly, goods can come could come from anywhere in the EU to the UK under that same system. No stopping at borders, no stopping at frontiers. A controlled movement, but with light control. Subsequent to that, what we have is a situation where if that the tax warehouse in the UK wants to move goods to anywhere in the EU, if the movement does not move under what's called the transit procedure, and most small companies wouldn't use that, they'd use what we call the EMS procedure, the tax warehouse keeper would initiate the first leg of the movement under what's called the EMCAS from, say, Manchester to a UK port, where an import entry would have to be, export declaration would have to be lodged, and an import declaration lodged in the EU, then the goods, so that's triple handling, then the goods would have to be entered into what's called the registered kind consignor framework, part of the EU EMCS, which they've retained, to commence the duty suspended movement from the EU port to a tax warehouse in the EU. So what was a single straightforward, simple uh, movement and flow has become sort of interrupted break between the UK, then a customs interface, then a clearance for customs in the EU, and then a re-entry to the EMCS in the in the EU so the movement can carry on. And it's that problem of particularly finding a person in the other member state that would be a registered consignor to initiate the movement in the EU has been a significant problem because we've got, what, four times the trade that we didn't have before. And there aren't sufficient, that as far as we could anticipate and are aware, that there were insufficient agents that could do this work. And what has the impact been on your members? Because recent years have seen decent sales for brown spirits. Whiskey has been a growth area. It's been part, in fact, I, I think, if I recall, at the beginning of the entire Brexit campaign, there were promises made that Scotch whiskey would boom in the post-Brexit environment. So for the small distiller that you'd be dealing with, what has the impact been? 
Well, the impact is, is disruption to the supply chains from what was a simple process to a much more complicated process, which involves both administration and cost, in addition to what would be a straightforward uh, sale to the, to the EU. So it's really, it, it's really disruption as much as anything that's caused the problem. The markets will be there, but it's the, it's the red tape. <laughs> the thing that we were supposed to lose actually has increased, maybe tripled for, for excise movements. And it's that that's going to determine, you know, access to the markets, really. And you mentioned that you would have to find a consignor on the other end. Is there reluctance for people who had been buying product on the other end that there's a hassle involved now in importing product from your members? That is what that is what's being reported in some some parts. It's too early to be able to say how this will this will eventually work its way through the system. Uh, but certainly, people have taken the view that it's at the moment it's too much hassle to try and export. Would it be an exaggeration to say a neighbouring country which is a member of the European Union and happens also to be a whisky producer <laughs> might be positioned to fill that gap, which could be a worry to your members? That's a possibility. Again, it would certainly be easier for, for that, that other country that's still in the EU to, to supply markets in the EU. But <laughs> again, it, it's a question of you know the demand for that, that those products uh, right. individually. You're selling a specialist product, of course, so it, it caters to people's particular taste. So in a way, that's an advantage. But to the receiver on the other end, the ultimate consumer, the customer, the drinker, is there an added cost involved on their end? Uh, it's the same with every all costs that are added on. Who bears the cost? Who bears that additional financial outlay? And is it, is it, the, is it the, the seller? Is it the, you know, someone in between? Uh, is it passed fully on to the consumer? It's a commercial decision, but it's not a pleasant one to have to make. The British government has announced recently that the point person for dealing with the European Union on working out some of the post-Brexit issues is changing from being Michael Gove to David Frost, who has himself mm-hmm. a background in Scottish yeah. whisky, albeit one probably, I, I think, and I'm open to correction on this, that dealt with some of the larger distillers. Is there any cause for optimism that he might be able to ease some of the problems or is this just a function of the new system for which there is no easement at at the moment? Oh, I I don't think that uh, that Mr Frost is is appointed and and his background is of any relevance to this at all, really. Um, The picture is much bigger than than one particular sector. And in any event, and I think the the other part of your question is, there will be no easement for excise products because they are controlled goods there is no easement now because they're always going to be controlled goods from the 1st of January. There will be no change to that. Excise goods will be controlled goods. There will be no easement. Uh, would I be mistaken in detecting a certain degree of exasperation and even frustration in your voice that this is something that is, is really providing a daily strain on you and your members? Yes, I mean, it, it, it's something we anticipated. I wouldn't say I'm not, I'm not exasperated by it in the sense of it could be anticipated uh, for, for the members, it is, and, and, and for businesses, of course, it is. It's, it's an additional, I think, a shock actually to many people that didn't really quite appreciate that, you know, that there wouldn't, that there's no such thing as frictionless trade. Once we left the EU and um, with Customs Union, we can't expect to go to a party dressed in jeans and T-shirts. Uh, and the dress code for guests is 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 a suit. We can't. We've got to wear a suit, and that's the way it is. It means you know we 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 have to follow certain rules, and that was that's the inevitability of it. And I don't think everyone fully grasped that uh, in terms of the admin and the red tape that would would not just not disappear. It would increase. 
All and right. of course, that's a frustration. Listen, Alan, thanks very much. It's been very interesting talking to you. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much. Well, another another, another weekend work, actually. Oh, God. Well, uh, you have our, our sympathies on that. That was Alan Powell of the British Distillers Alliance. Sean, as we look ahead to next week, what's coming up on the Brexit radar? On the Brexit radar, um, Wednesday the 24th is supposed to be the D-Day for uh, a meeting of the specialist committee, of the, sorry, of the joint committee uh, of the EU and UK. Uh, this is the one to sort out disputes in the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol, and that is specifically to try and sort out disputes in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, that will be chaired, presumably now for the last time, by Michael Gove and by his opposite number, Mara Shevchevich. Uh, they have been spending the past couple of days uh, hearing from uh, various uh, civic society groups in Northern Ireland uh, and uh, also some affected parties in the Republic of Ireland uh, and their officials have been working away on trying to find solutions. We were talking about this last week uh, where the British are, are looking for extensions of the grace periods that exist out until the beginning of 2023. Uh, that would get them past the hump, the political hump of the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly elections which are due to take place next year. Whether the EU can do that or not um, does remain to be seen. Uh, and then of course we're back to uh, this new relationship uh, with David Frost in charge. Mara Shevchevich uh, uh, also had appeared before the Irish Parliament uh, during the week uh, that has just passed now, where again he was being asked a lot about the uh, the how uh, this Article 16 business had cropped up in relation to the dispute with AstraZeneca and the vaccines, um, to the point where some uh, people in the uh, diplomatic service and the, the uh, various upper echelons of government were starting to get worried that the sandbagging that the commissioner was getting from members of the Irish Parliament might start to do damage to the relationship uh, with the European Commission. I'm not so sure uh, myself, having listened to all the exchanges that went on there. Um, I think uh, Mr Shevchevich uh, took it in his stride, uh, understood where the uh, MPs were and senators were coming from, but certainly held the line on it. Um, he also informed them about what he was hoping to do uh, with Michael Gove and his meetings. But again, not an awful lot of uh, clear information there. Very uh, diplomatic, I guess. Uh, so we'll have to wait until uh, next week, hopefully Wednesday, uh, before we start seeing some product there. But uh, both, uh, one thing he was very clear about to them was that he hoped to have all of the issues related to Northern Ireland solved in his meeting with Michael Gove next week. Um, if he doesn't get them solved next week, then he's going to have to be dealing with uh, David Frost in the weeks after that. And that could be a, a different uh, dynamic, shall we say, in that relationship and how that might play out. Uh, remains to be seen. Many Brexit republics might be based on that relationship, so uh, here's hoping for an interesting one. All right. Thanks, Sean. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungo, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another edition of Brexit Republic soon.